The Paul Kaharski Podcast is brought to you by Yazoo Brewing Company, a Nashville original since 2003. Live from the Georgia World Congress Center in Atlanta, this is Paul Kuharski with a Super Bowl edition of the Paul Kuharski Podcast, brought to you by Yazoo, the fine Nashville-made beer. I am pleased to be joined by Kevin Mawai, so this podcast may have a short shelf life, or you may be coming back to listen to it after he becomes a Hall of Famer Saturday night. Pleased to be joined by Kevin. Thanks a lot for the time. I'm so glad to be here. It's such a pleasure. Um, thank you now, and I've done it before for what you're doing for this process for me, and uh, hopefully I get the knock tomorrow, man, but I'm just going to go along for the ride see how it goes. What will you do to pass the time? This is your fourth time now, so third, what's third time? Third time. Yeah. So what's the plan to pass Saturday afternoon and wait all the way till what is it, 6 o'clock? Well, I think this year, I think because we're on the East Coast, things are going to be backed up a little bit or are going to be happening a little bit sooner. Um, but we were told last night to be in our room by, I think, 2.30 that we should know by 4. Um, but probably more going to be like 4.30 or 5. Two years ago, I had my mom and dad and my wife and one of my kids in the room with me, and it was just idle chatter for – four hours last year it was just my wife my daughter and same thing and you're like you don't want to watch tv because you're afraid you might hear you might miss something but you don't want to read social media for fear that you might find out some bad news the wrong way and so you just basically sit there and just kind of idle chit chat for a long time all the while pacing the room or last year i literally i got tired of being in the room i went and put some workout clothes on and just climbed the stairs in the tower I was in, just went and found the back staircase and went and just kind of ran up and down the staircase for about 40 minutes just to get a little workout in. And uh, so this year it's just my wife and I. We're going to uh, – she's my ride or die, man. And uh, so we're just going to hang out in the room and kind of spend time with each other and hopefully get a knock. Did it go incredibly slowly? It, it, three hours never felt like so much – I mean, I would rather watch uh, – some saga story for eight hours then to sit there for three hours and just wait but it's it's a long wait process it really feels like an eternity so you've seen these sheets uh, a lot of us put together this uh, you've got one in front of you that's uh, the titans helped me with it's got the kind of a picture of you and uh, as a seahawk a picture of you as a jet but the highlighted picture of you as a titan and then a lot of stats and and quotes you just kind of skimmed it but i wonder as you look at it uh and you what what jumps out at you on there or you're familiar with some of that stuff but the first time you heard some of this stuff what kind of bit you yeah i think for me the 16 years is a big deal i mean i have more pride in that than anything and then the game's played 238 starts out of 241 there's not a lot of guys that played that long um and so I, I hang my hat on that that i was durable i was reliable my teammates accounted you can count on me I was accountable to my teammates and my coaching staff. And then and then when I look at it, like I didn't know three years ago coming into this process that in 16 years I had 13 1,000-yard rushers. That for me was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then the one stat that I found out this year that I didn't know was that in all my games I had 92 100-yard rushers. And that's like far exceeds any other offensive lineman in the NFL. And, and that was pretty neat. I mean, you come up – you dig hard enough, you can find ways to skew numbers and turn them around to make them look good. But for an offensive lineman where there's no stats really readily available, um, to see numbers like that, those are the things that kind of, like, wow, those are pretty special. 
Also, those three years you didn't have a thousand-yard rusher. I don't have the specifics. You were hurt one of them. Yeah. I think Curtis Martin was hurt one of them. Yeah. I think in Seattle you had hurt running backs and whatever. There were there were circumstances in all three of yeah. those years. So I think the the last two years in Seattle, Chris Warren was hurt most of the, like, both of those years. I think the next guy was Lamar Smith, and I think. Uh, I forgot who the other guy was. Steve Martin, I think, is Steve somebody or other. But they're like close to it, like 800 yards or something like that. And then the one year that Curtis didn't get it was in 2005. And that's the year I was on IR after week five. Curtis went on IR like week seven or something like that. So our team was decimated with injuries. And so you look back on that and be like, wow, you know, that's the three years that I didn't play. For the three times that we didn't have a thousand yard rushers and but there's other factors that played into that you know other guys on the line hurt but you know your main running back being down also plays a huge part in that at what point did you realize in your career i wonder if it's as far back as as lsu or even before that did you realize that you could do things athletically that other centers couldn't do and that your team if it's so desired to pull you was going to be able to do some things offensively that uh, a team with a good center but maybe a less athletic center wasn't going to be able to do. Yeah, I knew, like, in high school, I, I, was, I, I was a second-level player all the time. I can get to the second level. Never thought anything about it. And then in college, I, was, I came into LSU as a center, and then my redshirt freshman year, I ended up having moved to left guard because you know, I had some injuries, or left, left tackle. And then the next year, I bumped from guard to center to tackle, and ESPN, I mean, Sports Illustrated did an article for each SEC team, and I was on the back of it, and it had a picture of me holding a, a pawn piece of a, of a chess game, and because I was a guy that could move all over the place, and, and it was frustrating at times, because I wanted to be a center, but I knew my athletic ability allowed me to play all four spots, or five spots, and I played tight end in some situations, so that's why I knew that there's, I knew all the time from a personal standpoint, like I could do things that other guys on the offensive line couldn't do from an athletic standpoint. Coming into the NFL, I wasn't asked to do a lot of that stuff until later, until like after, towards the end of my Seattle Seahawks days, into my New York Jets times. And then that's when, given the freedom, I would just start experimenting. What can I do? How can I do things that you would never, a, a sane offensive line coach would never teach somebody how to do some of the things I did, but I would just try it. And I would learn by failure and I mean, I'd have conversations with Howard Mudd and say, hey, I, I want to try to jump hook a three technique today. He's like, all right, go for it. You know, if you just, you know, give it a shot. And and that's how, you know, my coaches allowed me to learn what I was capable of doing. But then I also had a knack for the angles. Like, and that's when football is a game that played on angles. And so I knew the angles I could take and to, to reach a, an offset linebacker that's a two gaps removed and, you know, what's my best way to get there, or even an open space, how to play the angles to make sure you're fronting up on the guy, not leading them too much. And But again, it goes back to my coaches allowing me to experiment with what I was able to do. But I think the earliest is probably early college when I knew that I could do things that you would never teach people to do. That, that, they're talking about Howard Mudd letting you do some of that stuff ties right into this Bruce Matthews quote, which I love. He said he would jump hook guys, do some stuff that – at the coach's seminar of ideal line play, they'd be like, oh, gosh, that's just blasphemy. He was a results guy. You wouldn't coach it that way. You would say that's graduate school offensive line mindset. When you have such super confidence in your skills, you can go off the radar and do your own thing. 
Uh, I, I just think that's, to me, that's kind of what sets you apart. I want to talk about the other three offensive linemen. My, my thing is, I think, like, if I compare you to a baseline center, the difference between you and that guy, to me, is more strikingly dramatic. Maybe it's because you're in so much more space yeah. than the difference between Tony Baselli, who I think is a fantastic, fantastic left tackle, and a baseline left tackle. Is that partially because he's, he, he's doing things superb as well, but he's doing it in the same space that a regular left tackle is, and you're doing the center things in way more space? Yeah, I think, well, when you play the tackle spot or the guard spot, the, you know, even off of the center spot, you play in a phone booth, I just had the ability to expand the size of my phone booth and, and know how to do that. And, and I was given the opportunity to with, you know, with, late with the Seattle Seahawks, but more when I got to the Jets. And so Tony Baselli, phenomenal athlete, could have played out in space with anybody, but his job was to protect the backside of Mark Brunel and every other quarterback that lined up behind him. And, uh, and he did it phenomenally well. Just unfortunate for him, it was only for seven years. You know, Allen and, and Steve, you got a guard in the center on either side of you, but they never needed help. But their phone, bu phone booth was A-gap to A-gap, or maybe when they pulled on a power or gap scheme. But for me, I wasn't confined to four walls. I was able to, like, I could choose whether I wanted to play you in the box or play you outside of the box based on how I wanted to make that call. I could let you go be the box player or let you go be the space player because I had confidence that I could reach the guy that's covering you up. And, and that's what sets me apart from other guys. Damani Dawson could reach a two technique. Steve, Steve uh, Dwight Stevenson would reach out to a three technique. And I was able to do those things on a very consistent basis, but knowing the abilities of the guys around me, what I could allow them to do when I made my calls or what I wasn't capable of doing without them getting the right call. And so, uh, so I mean, I might have, if I'm running an outside toss game, the ball's going out fast, but I got a play side linebacker that's shaded to the play side. I could choose to pull, or I think I had the ability to get to his play side shoulder before the, the ball gets outside based on the alignments and how I knew the guy played. And, and uh, my coaches gave me the freedom to do that. So, but I think the ability to create whatever box I wanted to play in, whether it be vast or small, is what allowed me to set me apart from a baseline center. Mark Schlereths, who played with uh, Nalen, a very yeah. good center, he said that there were two teams in the league that could do certain things. The Steelers, because of Dermani Dawson, and your team, yeah. be it the end of Seattle, the, the time you were with the Jets, or, or the Titans. Yeah. That there were 30 other teams that wanted to do those things, wanted to find a guy that would allow them to do those things, but simply didn't have that chapter in their playbook because they didn't have a guy like they that. Couldn't. And, and that's the one thing that I look at when I look at other guys is what did you do that changed the game that made the other coaches think about how they call the plays? And so when we started all at the toss, uh, the bunch formations with Curtis and toss cracks or the, the open end screens to the wide side. Then you like the next year after the AFC Championship year, you start seeing other teams try to do it, and they're really their centers were getting in the way. They just couldn't get out in the open space, or they get clogged up, or they just didn't have the ability to do it. So you always saw teams trying to do it, or trying to emulate it, but nobody duplicated it. And then over the course of the career, you have some guys to do this, and but even now, you know I think Kelsey's the kid, the kid from Philadelphia does a great job playing in space. I think the two Pouncey brothers can do it. 
but it's not a part of their offense. They don't do it on a very consistent basis. For us, it was a go-to. It was like our first play in the playbook is going to be toss, crack, and it'd be it's going to be toss, tiger, toss, crack, toss, whatever, depending on who I was going to pull for, whether it be safety, the corner, or the Mike linebacker. And so we would create different different ways for me to get in space, but we'd mix it up. One time I'm blocking the corner, was playing the force, and our next day I'm playing the safety. Next thing you know, he's coming down thinking, I'm going to take him. He gets cracked by receiver, and now I bend around and pick the linebacker coming up over the top. And, and that's something that everybody tried, but nobody could ever replicate what we did. And, um, and that's what I think sets, separates me from everybody else because I changed the way coaches had to think about the center position. Parcells, it took a, you know, a calculated risk on making me the highest paid center in the history of the league. And I told him that day I signed my contract that I wouldn't disappoint him. And to this day, I don't think I ever have. And uh, But I don't think there's anybody that played the game at that position the way I played it. The most remarkable thing I came up with out of, out of digging for this, this time around was from Zach Thomas, who I had a great conversation with about you. And you guys had a hell of a history of battling as divisional opponents. And he said when they sat down to get ready for the Jets, they did not game plan for a quarterback. They did not game plan for a running back. They game planned for a center. They game planned for you. I, I've never heard such. I've never heard anybody game planning for an offensive line. <laughs> yeah, and I read that and I got a lot because Zach and I had our battles. I mean, we played against each other at eight years, like 15 times in eight years. The one game he did not play in was the Monday Night Miracle in 2000. And um, I think the game for them could have been a lot different had he played that game and the comeback not been as great. But uh, he was a fierce competitor and the smartest player I've ever played against. I mean, he's a guy that can look at your formation, diagnose the entire blocking team, and he did it in the middle of the game. Kevin's blocking down here. This guy's going to the ball's going to hit. I mean, he had the whole thing planned out, and and he didn't stop it. But but it was kind of it was a fun deal. And I tell people all the time if if Michael, you know, it was a, it was a uh, Magic Johnson had Larry Bird, then then for me it'd be it'd be Zach Thomas, you know, and. And he's a guy I, I respect dearly and uh, for, as a player. I don't really know him as personally as much as, as I would probably have liked to. But uh, we always have fun playing against each other. And it was it was a battle. I mean, the guy played hard, played sideline to sideline, but he was the smartest player I ever played against. And for that compliment, does anybody has, has, yeah, you know, nobody else ever ever game plans for the center spot. But I found out after my later on, well, we, my last game, with, well, last season with the Titans, I was playing the Jets. We were playing the Jets in New York. And uh, one of the center, one of the young offensive linemen told me prior to the game, because they, the defense has a play that's designed to take you out. And it's a pick play where you're going to get drawn out of the middle of the pocket, and Chris Jenkins is lined up as a five technique, and he's going to come in and just take you out. And so the game went, as the game went on, that within the first series on a particular pass play. You could recognize it? Yeah, well, it didn't make sense because Jenkins, who's 335 pounds, was a wide five over over uh, uh, Stewart on the right side. And then the nose tackle on his rush, he didn't rush me. He kind of stood there and he backed out, trying to draw me out of the pocket. And as soon as that happened, I put my head on a swivel and I saw Chris coming at me. And I backed up just enough time to kind of take the blow, but I knew what it was. And I, I went after him after that play. And then that's Sean Ellis came and hit me. and. So you fast forward several years later, I'm in, ten, I'm in Baton Rouge. I just got done working with Trey Turner at this pro day, and the Ryan brothers were there. 
And so I asked Rex about it. And uh, I said, Chuck Smith, who was the D-line consultant at the time, he had told me about some, he, he gave it a name. And uh, so I asked Rex, right, and then Rex is the whole, you're damn right, we're trying to get you out as quickly as possible. And so that was kind of, you know, it was confirmation that they at least spent some time trying to figure out how to eliminate me from the game plan, and it didn't work. But we ended up losing that game anyway, so. But uh, but the play is that if you watch the film, if you go on the film and watch it, you can see, you know, there was no intention for Jenkins to come around and try to get to the pocket. It was all about coming and taking me out. And uh, I still have my brace on after I had the elbow surgery, and I think that's what ticked me off even more is because, that you know, it was intentional. I wanted to ask you also about the union. Um, obviously, you were a key, key guy as president of the union. We ran into DeMora Smith this week, actually, at uh, Ted's Montana Grill. And we had a chance to ask him about you, and he said he thought that you saved the union. And not in the way many people might think that he meant, but that you woke up one morning in 2008 to learn that Gene Upshaw had died. And Gene Upshaw obviously was probably uh, the strongest union figure there ever had been. And you did not sign up as union president to deal with something like that and to steer the union through the loss of the guy above you. How, how did you come to terms with that and guide the union through that? That, that was a difficult time because the, the spring prior when I got elected, I went there and told the board that I was stepping away from the union. After 12 years of serving on the board, I felt like my time was up and I wasn't gonna run for the president job. But then I heard things were going on behind the scenes that that I didn't agree with and I just felt compelled that I needed to run and I did and you know and Gene kind of convinced me that I needed to be a part of that and uh, and so the day of the election I reversed course and put my name in the hat and accepted the nomination well then we had some deals that we had to deal with in that transition and then uh, and so we were a very divided leadership front at that time and so fast forward into training camp, and I think it was like August 8th or something like that, I get a phone call early in the morning from Mary Moran, who was Gene's special assistant, and uh, to let me know that Gene had passed away that morning. And, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was like shocked, you know, wow. You know, I gave a statement that day at the, at the Titans facility. And, uh, but what that did is start a whirlwind of a season, which we went 13-3 and three that year, to finding our next executive director. And what people don't know about that time from the, the week of his death until the end of the season, every Monday I flew out of Nashville to Washington, D.C. or Dallas or some other city that first started off with going through how to put together this process or how we're gonna find the next guy. And then the next several weeks was vetting search firms every Tuesday on my day off. And then from that point on, the rest of the season was vetting candidates. And that went all the way through March of that following year, 2009. And so my off days during the 2008 season when we went 13-3 to was, was going through that process, which is a very heated and a, a very political process with our union leadership at the time and outside forces. Imagine getting ready to play a game on a Sunday, but that Monday you get, you get subpoenaed to come to 
a U.S. Senator's office to give an accounting of your search firm or your search process and that and your integrity is being called into question because a particular individual didn't feel like you were doing it the way they thought you should have been doing it. And so I had to sit there before congressmen and give an accounting of my process and how I did that. And, and it, it caused some hurt feelings the way we did it. But at the end of the day, my goal was to find the right guy, but do it in a way that was, was done with integrity. So that could never be questioned on my part. And I feel like I did that. And the guy that ended up getting that job was, was uh, D. And um, to this day, what I did within that organization, especially during that time, not even a lockout, but during that time to, to find new leadership and hold our current leadership together to where we got to a point where everybody was, all right, we're in the right place now to go forward. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I tell everybody, that's when I went from a black beard to a gray beard. And I got the stress levels that I had. And I really believe I had one of my best years as a player in that 2008 season because when I got back on a Tuesday night at midnight and had to be at practice at seven o'clock the next morning, that, that, was a, that was a relief for me. For like four days of practice in a game was my haven away from the political mess of the NFLPA. And um, it really, really forced me to focus on just being a football player because I didn't want to deal with the PA stuff during those times. And I would say no matter what people think of the union or how the union's done or any of that, that your role with the union is another chapter in uh, what I believe to be a Hall of Fame career. I mean, I, and that's something other guys didn't I do. Because I think, what did you do for the game? Not just playing the game, what did you do for the entire game? And that includes the negotiations, that includes player leadership at the highest level, that includes being able to call any player on that field that that I represent you know, before a game going across the field and talking to somebody from the Indianapolis Colts and say, hey, what's going on in your locker room? And, you know, this is what we're trying to do. And or going to, you know, the Jacksonville Jaguars and talking to their guys and, and having that communication and that relationship that I'm playing against you today, but I want you to know, like, when I step foot off this field, my other full-time job is to represent you, to get you the best, to take care of you as a player and I think players recognize that, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle. Um, but I tell people all the time, my proudest moment off the field as a football player is my, my name on a 2011 CBA because I know what went through in those four years as a president to get to that point. Everything from Gene passing away to finding a new executive director to re restructuring our, le our leadership board to finally going through a lockout and making sure that we stay strong through that and then finally culminating in the 2011 season. And so unless you sat in my shoes or sat along that, those rides with me, um, people don't know. They don't know what happened behind closed doors. And Dee and I joke around all the time, if we ever wrote a book, it could be a bestseller, you know, it matched Marvin Miller's book. But, uh, but it, it was tough. It was a hard four. The first eight months was the hardest eight months of my time as a, player, as a rep or player president or vice president of the NFLPA. Fascinating inside insight. Listen, man, I hope you get the knock and not the call. Uh, are you going to honors either way? Yeah, I'm going to go either way. I think, you know, the guys that get in deserve to be honored by those that aren't. And uh, it's, it's a part of paying your respect to the game and to the guys that, that came before me and are going to come after me. But one day somebody else is going to be sitting in those stands, and I'm going to be on the one on stage. And I would hope they'd want to be there to congratulate me as well. Another reason you're one of class act. Um, so I'll see you there either way. I've seen you in the lobby the last couple of years. Yeah to shake your hand and say, I'm sorry you didn't make it. 
hopefully this year I'll be in one of the front two rows where you're up on the stage. But either way, I look forward to seeing you Saturday night. Thanks so much again. Can't thank you enough. You've done a great job, and you're going to do a great job in there tomorrow, Saturday morning. The Paul Kaharski Podcast is a joint production of paulkaharski.com and Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. <laughs>